our guest preacher today. Uh, I, I told the smaller group that was gathering before uh, the service uh, to just go over some of the details that John is a longtime friend of Jordan Thomas, but also the other pastors here at Grace Church. Um, uh, for many years, we've rubbed shoulders and um, have um, bounced ideas off of one another. John has been one of those um, unique uh, pastoral voices to your pastors. Um, always a word of wisdom from this brother and such gentle care is always extended when John is present. Uh, he's a part of the Treasuring Christ Together Network. Um, he serves that network on the Steadfast Project. I thought it was fitting that Amy would quote so many verses from God's Word today about his steadfastness because within the TCT Network, Treasuring Christ Together Network, there's a thing called the Steadfast Project that John oversees. And really, it has a twofold aim, to care for the pastors of the churches and to try to get those churches uh, in care for one another, to, to relate to one another, to interact with one another, to uh, build those relationships so that we can together take the gospel to the ends of the earth, go to the nations and see churches planted across the globe. John is at the center of all that work in the life of the network. Uh, among other things. So he is a faithful brother, so glad that he's going to come and preach from Acts chapter 14 to us today. John, thank you for being here, brother. Uh, good to see your face and uh, looking forward to being under the word in your preaching. Greetings, Grace Church, from your brothers and sisters in Minnesota, other Treasuring Christ Together churches, and greetings from our family who loves this church very much. Brian, I was thinking about uh, sitting in a, our little Maria's restaurant in 2005 as, as you and Nathan and, and Jordan were, were thinking about the birth of Grace Church and now these many years later to see what God has done. Grace Church, I want you to know that this is a beautiful church. Not the building. This people is a beautiful church. And our Father's got you on a journey. You're meeting in the afternoon in somebody else's building, and that's just fine because He will hold you fast. And our great God's hand has been on this church from the very beginning. He has used this church in more ways than anybody in this room knows to communicate truth to strengthen pastors and churches across the Memphis area and so many churches and pastors around the world. God has used this church in remarkable ways. So greetings. It is an honor to be here. We're going to look at one of my favorite points in church history this afternoon. It's in Acts 13 and 14. We're going to do the whole chunk, so we're going to have to go fast. But it's Acts 13 and 14, and I want to invite you to, to turn there. And as you do, I want to tell you why I want us to open God's Word to this place this afternoon. In Acts 13 and 14, something very remarkable in the history of the church happens. And I hope that you will see it with me. And as you see it, that your hearts will be filled with the joy that fills my heart as I come to this text. Let me pray briefly one more time. Father, we need you. 
as our sister prayed earlier, our hope is in your never-ending, never-failing covenant, always for forever, hesed, steadfast love that never ceases. You know every burden and pain and distraction and trial in this room. And Father, we pray that you would pour out your steadfast love on us. And in these minutes, would you cause joy to explode in our hearts as we encounter your Son in your powerful word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' mighty, powerful name. Amen. Well, friends, this world is filled with lots of reasons to fear. Whether it's the news or just your life, whether it's your kids or it's at work or it's finances, or it's the neighborhood or it's what's happening in Memphis, there are no end of reasons to fear. To fear. But we're gonna see in this story this afternoon a remarkable work of God among those who had so much to fear. And emerging from the soil of reasons to fear sprung up a plant of courage. A courage that came out of the root of joy. And as we follow along this first missionary journey, we're going to look at what an amazing thing our God did. A missionary journey that absolutely changed the world. So we're going to consider this missionary journey. We're going to zoom in on one climactic moment on this journey. And then we'll end thinking about three ways this applies to our lives. All right, so here we are at Acts 13. Jesus began the book saying, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'm going to give you my spirit. And so fearful saints like Peter turn into bold preachers. But as Acts 1 through 12 goes, the, the gospel has gone to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. It's been to that near region. But now in Acts 13, it pivots. And now the gospel, the good news this message of the kingdom is going to go global right here. And it begins just north of Jerusalem in a town called Antioch. And the, the church that has formed in this town called Antioch came out of persecution that happened to the church in Jerusalem. So we wouldn't even have this story apart from all kinds of hard things happening to God's people. But now we pick up the story there in verse 1 of Acts 13. There were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. There were five leaders, a remarkable group of five men that God had brought together. There was Barnabas, who was known as the son of encouragement. There was Simeon, who was called Niger, or the black. Simeon was of African descent. There was Lucius of Cyrene, the island of Cyrene. And there was Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Menaean was connected. He had friends in high places. And there was a fifth person, the most unlikely of the bunch. This fifth leader 
in the Church of Jesus Christ at Antioch. This fifth leader, who not very many chapters before had been murdering Christians, had been arresting Christians, had been persecuting Christians. He was the least likely of all people to not only come to faith in Christ, but to be used by Christ to make his good news known. This man named Saul, so unlikely. And yet God is God. In Acts 9, we read just a little bit of of, of Paul's story when he's on that road getting ready to go persecute Christians and, and, and Jesus appears to him, makes himself known to him. And then he says of him, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles or before the nations, before kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So here are these five brothers. They're in Antioch. And and we've heard the most about this guy named Saul because not only has has King Jesus said he's going to set him apart for the work, but he said he's going to suffer immensely. And we read of that suffering in other places, but just one example of the kind of suffering that Saul is enduring, likely before this story even begins. He says in 2 Corinthians that he was was beaten with lashes, 39 lashes, five times by Jewish leaders. Imagine what that's like. Paul would go into a synagogue and there would be such anger that they would pull Paul aside to try to purge this apostate doctrine, this message of Christ that he was speaking out of him 39 times. And that happened five times. So here we are, the church at Antioch, and these five are there. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. Set apart some of the best leaders you have in your church to go and make Christ known. Grace Church, God may call some of your best to go out from you to plant other churches, to make Christ known. Paul didn't send himself off, and he didn't go alone. He went off commissioned, and he went together. This required courage from this Antioch church, and yet they sent him to go. Look at Acts 13, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas went town to town. They went to Seleucia, and then they went to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they're going town to town. What did they do? Verse 5, they proclaimed the word of the Lord. We're going to see again and again. What do they do? They proclaim the word of the Lord. Where where do they proclaim it? Well, in verse 5 it says, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Imagine the courage necessary to go town to town for Paul and proclaim Christ to Jewish people in the synagogue, already enduring such significant suffering. But he went 
town to town to town proclaiming the word of God. And why would he do this? Because Barnabas and Paul knew that we live in a world filled with lies. Young people, the older you get, the more you're going to recognize how many lies are in the air everywhere around you. And Barnabas and Paul knew that most of their hearers, almost all of their hearers, were in spiritual bondage and slavery because of these lies. And God has given us one weapon, and it is his word. And they proclaimed the word of God, this hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, this two-edged sword that pierces the thoughts and intentions of the heart. They didn't have anything else, but they had everything because they had the word of God. Now, verse 13, Paul and his companions are going town to town, town to town, but now we're going to focus in on four main towns that they hit. Just for for memory's sake, we'll call them town one, town two, town three, town four, all right? Because it's a lot to keep track of. They arrive in town one, called Antioch. It's a different Antioch than where they were sent. It's confusing. Just think of it as town one, all right? They arrive in Antioch, Acts 13, 13. And it says, on the Sabbath day, they went into the Jewish synagogue and they sat down. All right, every town they go, they're doing the same thing. They're preaching Christ. They're teaching the word of God. Some people are going to believe. When they believe, those believers are called disciples. They teach those disciples. They gather them into churches. They appoint leaders. They go to the next town. Every single town, they do the same thing. They preach Christ, they teach disciples, they gather into churches, they appoint leaders, and then they do a fifth thing, which we'll see at the end. Verse 15, after reading from the law and the prophets. So already they've been in multiple towns, but now the the story zooms in on this one town, this, this town called Antioch, town one. And I want you to now zoom in with me on this story. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Barnabas and Paul saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and he said this. Now again, he's been beaten over and over for his boldness, but he steps up. He is ready. God has given him an, uh, an unhuman courage to do this. And as he begins, a battle commences. A battle of truth and lies. A battle for the, the hearts of his hearers. And so he says, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Jesus, the son of David. Now we're not going to read the entire sermon here. You can read it on your own. But but I want you to notice this reality, that this sermon, when we read it, it it, it doesn't seem that powerful to our ears. But we have to understand what was happening. He is showing them this Old Testament that you love, all of it is pointing and showing that this promised one, this Messiah that has been promised for so many centuries, this 
is Christ. And as he goes, he is pointing not to himself, but to Christ. He's pointing that Christ is the fulfillment of every Old Testament book, every chapter. So Grace Church, just just consider this this reality. Genesis 1 begins how? Some, Some child or young person, tell me the first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1-1, any child, how does it begin? In the beginning. Very good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was very good for two chapters, right? And then we have the enemy, the serpent, who enters into the story. And he tells our first parents the lie. The lie that God is not really good. God is not really for you. God does not really want you to be happy. And he invites them to take and eat the only fruit that God said not to eat. And they did. Eve and her husband, Adam. And then God makes this declaration that shapes the entire world, that shapes what's happening here at Acts 13. He says... To Eve, your descendants, your children, and the seed of the serpent will be an enmity forever for the rest of history. The children of faith and the children of non-faith, of the enemy, will be locked in a battle for the rest of the Bible. This serpent will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, pointing forward to what Christ would do as part of this battle. But it would be a battle. And Grace Church, I'm here to tell you that in the wisdom of God, he has placed us smack dab in the middle of a battle. If you don't understand this, it's hard to understand why life is the way that it is. You have not been born into peacetime. You have been born smack dab in the middle of a cosmic conflict, a spiritual battle where those who are in sin, those who are the seed of the serpent and those who are in faith calling on Christ, the seed of the woman, they're living in diametrically opposed ways and there's this constant friction, constant conflict, constant warfare that is happening. And so as the Bible unfolds, we see this conflict happening again and again. Remember when the second book of the Bible opens up, how does it open up? There's this one who will deliver God's people, Moses. And yet even when he's born as a seed of the woman, as one of this race who will trust in God, the seed of the serpent, this this representative of Satan, Pharaoh, wants to kill all of the babies and there's conflict. The New Testament begins the same way when the seed of the woman, when Christ is born, this representative of the seed of the serpent, Herod, wants to kill all the babies and there's conflict and there's death. So we have been born into a battle. It is very real, it is very sharp, and it is very serious. And if you are unaware that there is a battle going on, whether it's on a foreign battlefield or whether it's in an urban street, you can walk right in to death and conflict unaware. 
You heard last week, as Tommy preached from 1 Timothy 6, a call to fight the good fight. What does that mean? It means that we are in a battle in the Christian life is a call to fight. It is a warfare. We know that Ephesians 6 tells us that we are to be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of the might. We're to put on His spiritual armor. Why? Because we don't wrestle against people. We don't wrestle against the boss that we don't like. We don't wrestle against the family member that really gets on our nerve. We don't wrestle even against leaders or powerful people that are evil ultimately. We are wrestling against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers in the heavenly places against spiritual forces of evil in the spiritual realm. How in the world can we have any shot to win in that battle? We put on God's armor. We put on God's protection. And as we do, Paul says four times there, if you put this on, you can stand. You can stand. As you put this armor on, you can stand even in the evil day. And so these brothers are going into this conflict moment, into this incredible battle, but they're not going alone. They are wearing the armor of God. They are wearing the belt of truth. They've done away with lies. They put on the spotless righteousness of Christ as their breastplate. They're wearing on their feet the gospel of peace, the readiness, shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. They've got the helmet of salvation knowing that their future is sure even if they die. They're lifting up the shield of faith to extinguish all of Satan's lies that he fires at us. And they're bearing the sword of the Spirit. So this is the battle that Barnabas and Paul were engaged, town to town, in all these places where Christ had never been preached. We think, what chance did they have on their own? None. But wearing this armor with the God of heaven with them, they had an incredible, incredible chance. They had the word. Would there be suffering? Absolutely. Will there be suffering in your life? Yes, there will. But the result here and the result in your life as you look to Christ will be stunning. Down to verse 26, here in the middle of the sermon, he's pointing to Christ, how he fulfills all of the Old Testament. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Again, they've never heard this before. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Christ, nor understand what the prophets were saying, the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled what the prophets said by condemning Christ. Though they found in Christ no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Christ, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. Imagine hearing this for the first time. And then verse 30. But God raised Jesus 
from the dead. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And those who were with him are now his witnesses to all peoples. And we bring you, town one people, Antioch people, we bring you good news that what God promised to our forefathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus, even as it was written in the second Psalm. Then he uses Psalm 2 and Isaiah 5 and Psalm 16, Habakkuk 1, all pointing to say they were all pointing to Christ and now it's been fulfilled. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, I've never heard this before, through this man, Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law tells you, do not steal. The law tells you, do not covet. The law tells you, do not lie or murder. But now something better than the law has come. And he is preaching here that Christ has come to free you from everything that just trying to keep the law couldn't free you from. Imagine how this landed on people. The law shows us that our sin is sinful. It doesn't give us the power to master sin. Think about even right now. What is it in your life that is fighting for mastery in your heart? Or maybe you've come in today and there is something that is mastering your heart other than Christ. Well, these hearers, they had all kinds of things that were mastering them. They had their addictions. They had their hidden sins. They, they knew what it was that the good that they wanted to do, they didn't do. And the that which they didn't want to do, that's what they did. They were asking themselves, who will rescue me from this body of death? They knew about idolatry, loving their sports games and teams more than Christ, loving their money more than Christ, loving their power and prestige more than Christ. Paul says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by Christ, everyone who believes in him is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And people have to be wondering, is this really true? Is this actually true? Here they were proclaiming Christ who is the truth. Christ who would set free through his truth. And this is so powerful because it, when it lands on their lives and when it lands on our lives, it changes everything. One more thing. Young people, I just want to say something to you because there's a lot of young people that have grown up in this church. And I know that for me, when I was growing up and hearing of Christ, 
too often I was just bored. It, it didn't make any sense to me. And I want you to know one reason why that might be. If you come Sunday after Sunday and you think, this, this, I don't get it, it's boring. All of us are born spiritually blind. We can't see. And it's only when God gives us eyes to see that this news changes everything. That's when Sundays begin to change in your life. And so if Sunday is boring when you come, if the Word of God is boring when you come, just pray and say, God, help me see. Help me see. The enemy of our soul has one main aim. He wants to keep us blind. He doesn't want us to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But when you go outside in the morning, you got your flashlight on trying to see, and suddenly the sun comes up, what do you do with the flashlight? You turn it off. You don't need it anymore. And when God begins to reveal His beauty, His power, His goodness, His happiness, His purposes, His promises, His plans to us, just it, it changes everything. Well, how did these folks respond? Look at verse 42, Acts 13, 42. As Paul and Barnabas finished, and as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after meeting, the meeting of the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, they, they just wanted more. They're like, please teach us more. We've never heard this. Teach us, teach us. Come back next week, teach us. Paul and Barnabas turned to them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Well, what happens next week when the synagogue meeting happens? Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. Can you imagine? You, you pull up to church and there's just, there's traffic everywhere. Everybody's trying to get in. Wondering, what is happening? What's going on? Everybody has been talking with their friends and their neighbors. The whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. Everything goes smooth? No. There's conflict. There's battle. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. They began reviling and making fun of him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Who's the you there? They're in the synagogue and he's speaking to the Jewish people. But there, some are mocking him. Some are saying, boo, get off the stage, get out of here. He says, okay, now this, this is great. This is absolutely great. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, here he is speaking to the Jews, but the whole city has come out and there's all of these non-Jews, all of these Gentiles waiting over here. And he turns around and he says, you thrust it aside. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is historic. The church has been growing, mainly among Jewish people, right in that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. But now here he is, quite a ways away in town one in this other Antioch. And he's saying, we are turning to the Gentiles. Why? Because all of history has been leading to this moment. God has arranged events in the Old Testament and the Gospel in their travel to bring them to this moment. Here's what I want you to see. If you look at verse 47, you'll see there's a little notation that indicates this is a a reference from the Old Testament. And this reference from the Old Testament, we're going to see this, this reference in two other places that are so good, so good. 700 years before the Old Testament, this verse was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, speaking of, of Christ and of Paul and Barnabas in this moment, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then, that's Isaiah. We got it right here. What's the middle dot and these three dots? Where's Simeon Suggs? Simeon, we were just talking about you earlier in your great name. The beginning of Luke, Luke 2, the little baby Christ is brought to the temple and brought to an old man. What's his name? His name is Simeon. And Simeon, as he receives Christ, this righteous and devout old man who the Holy Spirit had been speaking to and working, and he says, Lord, now I can die. I can depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This child is the one Isaiah prophesied of. And now Jesus has sent out his disciples to be his witnesses, including Barnabas and Paul. And now here they are, this light to the Gentiles. And here they are declaring you can be free in Christ, the creator who made all these mountains and hills, Gentiles all around you, who made you, who made your body, sent his son who is sinless and perfect to become your sin and all of your sin, all of your murder and lust and greed and anger and unbelief, all of it was put on him so that the righteous one would become unrighteous and you, the unrighteous, might be made righteous before God. What's the result? Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. They began glorifying the word of the Lord. They are praising the word of the Lord. They are ecstatic. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Can you imagine? They're in a town, and all of these have gathered, and and, and they turn, and they're speaking to these Gentiles. And now, the church has not been mainly Gentiles. There's just been these little little instances of guys like Cornelius, but now here it is. The, 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 The promise has begun to take root The Gentiles heard this. They're rejoicing. 
and as many as were appointed believed. Paul and Barnabas know this is why we came, but they also know we're in a battle. So we just went and we just rescued some kidnapping victims of the enemy, some spiritual kidnapping victims. We just rescued them and we brought them into freedom. They're knowing the freedom that's in Christ, but they know the battle's not done. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They drove them out of their district. Get out of here! They shook the dust off their feet from town one, from Antioch to go to town two. How are the disciples feeling at this moment? Look at verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because captives have been rescued. The promise of God has been fulfilled. All of these new believers have come to faith in Christ. We might have been chased off. We might have been kicked out. But God is God. Grace Church, we need to talk about joy. Because here they are being chased off. And it says they were filled with the Spirit and they were filled with joy. And I want you to know that the fruit of courage that we need to face all the hardships that life throws at us, the fruit of courage comes from the root of joy. Joy grows up and produces courage. And when you and I realize who God is and who we are, what our greatest need is and what God has done, the result in our hearts is joy. Joy is the fruit of God working powerfully in our lives. Remember what Jesus said when he said, I've spoken everything that I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Paul says again and again of his work, he just says, we work with you for your joy. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Peter says, even though you don't see Christ now in person, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you want that, brothers and sisters? Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Friends, when we get caught up in this joy that Christ has for us, then this Christ-given courage can't help but follow. A Christian is in battle, but he knows how the battle ends. He knows who's in charge. He knows who's for him. And all of that produces joy and that joy gives courage even when there's opposition. Paul and Barnabas and you and I can persevere. Acts 14, we got to speed up. Here we are in town too. Now at, and now at Iconium, they entered again into the synagogue. They spoke again of Christ. And again, God worked in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Okay, so now we're getting this long story in town one shrunk down into, now we're just getting the highlights. 
ESPN's just getting, giving us 45 seconds here, all right? They went into the synagogue full of courage, captured by the joy of God. They proclaimed Christ. Jews and Greeks both believed what's going to happen next. They're in a battle, so there's going to be opposition. Verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against these brothers. So what did Paul and Barnabas do? Verse 3, so they remained for a long time. They've got critics. They've got people saying, these guys are losers. They're liars. Don't listen to them. They remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. And God is bearing witness to the word. He's granting signs and wonders to, to prove to the people these men are from God. But this battle is always raging. And so the people of the city were divided. Some sided with these Jewish opponents and some sided with Barnabas and Paul. And finally there was an attempt, verse 5, made by Gentiles and Jews to not only mistreat them but to kill them by picking up large rocks and stoning them to death. What did Paul and Barnabas do? When they learned of it, they fled to town three and town four, to Lystra and to Derby. And as they went, it says in verse seven, they continued to preach the gospel. They attempted, all Paul's doing is, is this. He's up, he's teaching the word of God, he's pointing to Christ, and they want to stone him. They want to kill him. And living in 2023 America right now, it's a little hard to understand what I might say that would move you to go outside, pick up large rocks, and try to kill me. But that's what happened. Why? I don't know if this is going to work, but I just want to try this. Okay, you keep your finger in Acts 14 and go with me to Romans 1. This weekend across America is this thing called Pride Weekend, right? In my city, so many people. Now, if I roll up at my local Pride Festival and start teaching them what Paul wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 1, things would definitely get interesting, right? If you don't know Romans 1, you need to know this text. This is a very powerful text that helps us understand this moment we're living in. Let's just take a moment and consider this, this text and think about what the response would be with all of these folks boasting in their pride. Romans 1, verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. All right, let me give you my, my summary here. God has made known through trees and rivers and plants and whales and solar systems and everything that he's God. That all of this points, all of this design points to a designer. It's obvious to every person on the planet, every child, every adult. 
And yet man doesn't want there to be an authority besides him, so he pushes the truth about God down under the water, under the surface, so no one can see it, and and he can just say, I'm God. God says that's the big sin going on in the world. For God's invisible nature, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the beginning of the world. But our neighbors, our fellow Americans, although they knew God, they did not honor God. They did not honor God or thank him. Every day we eat, every minute our heart is beating, our lungs are breathing, and yet for most people, there's no acknowledgement. Thank you, God, for making me. Thank you, God, for my life. Thank you for another day's food. They didn't acknowledge him. They didn't thank him. Instead, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the, the beauty of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of They exchanged all of that for images resembling mortal man. They said, I'm not interested in, the, in this greatness of God. Let's talk about John Morant. I, I'm not interested in this, this God who created the heavens and the earth. I just want some Taylor Swift merchandise. Taylor Swift was in my town this weekend, and as I was riding by 7 a.m. in the stadium, there were more than 100 people camped out to get a Taylor Swift t-shirt. Like, wow, that's commitment. But across this world, man exchanges the glory of God for all these images, resembling people and birds and animals. Therefore, here's the key, a refrain three times. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of the bodies among themselves because they didn't honor God. They exchanged the truth about God that he is good for a lie, that he is not good. And they worshiped created things. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, second time, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up a third time to a debased mind to do what ought not ought to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. It lists a whole bunch of things. And at the end, it says, not only do they do all of this unrighteousness, but they give approval to those who practice them. Not only do they practice all of this unrighteousness, they hold big parades and celebrate. When you bring this message to that group, you may get attacked verbally or otherwise. Back to Acts 14. Give you a little feeling of what, may, what that may have been like. So town two, verse seven, has chased them off and now they are at town three. And here's where the climactic moment comes. 
So they come to town three. And in town three, now at Lystra, there was a man who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. Imagine, now here's a man whose, whose feet are so shriveled up he can't walk. Everybody in town knows him. And here he is right here. Paul and Barnabas have come to preach. They've come to preach Christ. But God wants to make sure everybody knows that what they're saying is true. And so he has given them this ability to to heal. And so Paul looks at this man and he says, your faith has made you well. Stand upright on your feet. And this man, who had never walked before, jumps up and he begins walking. And shockwaves go through the town. Everybody is talking. No one can understand what is going on. It says in verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in their own language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they said, was was Zeus, and Paul was Hermes. They were these gods. They've come. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city. Imagine here's this great Greek temple to Zeus and and, and the head of that temple comes out and he wants to offer sacrifice with all the crowds to Paul and Barnabas. You're gods, we're worshiping you. Paul and Barnabas say, no, 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 stop, you've got it all wrong. No, verse 15, we also are men of like nature, We have brought you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and in all that's in them. He allowed the nations to walk in their own ways before, but now he did not leave himself without a witness. He did good to you by giving you rain and fruitful season, satisfying your heart with all these things. But even with these words, the people just wanted to worship and sacrifice. They were so excited. But now we see the pattern happening again. They're in a battle. The conflict's coming. It always comes. So now look at verse 19. But those Jewish opponents came from town one and town two, from Antioch and Iconium, and they persuaded the crowds who were ready to bow down and worship, were ready to hold a parade, were ready to sacrifice for them. They persuaded the crowds and they went from being fanboys and girls to those who were going to find the right rock. And they went out and they went to the rock pile and they took up rocks. Think about this moment and what this is like. The in Acts 14, 19, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They persuaded the crowds. They picked up rocks and they started to hurl them at Paul. Thump, 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 thump. Here's a man of God filled with the Spirit declaring the good news of Jesus Christ his life, his suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the response of the crowd, hostility to pick up large rocks to stone him. Grace Church, does that sound familiar to you? A man of God filled with the Spirit 
preaching Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We've heard this story before in the book of Acts. Back to Acts 6 and 7. And at the end of Acts 7, Stephen is the preacher, the man of God, filled with the Spirit, preaching Christ, his death, his resurrection. At the end of Acts 7, people picked up rocks and they stoned him to death. Remember that? He was filled with the Spirit. He looked up and saw Christ there. But as all those enemies were hurling those rocks at Stephen, they'd taken off their garments, their robes, and they laid them all at someone's feet. You remember whose feet they laid them at? They laid them at Saul's feet. The pre-converted Paul. The irony of this situation that the one who had given approval to the stoning of the man of God who is speaking by the Spirit of Christ is now himself the man of God, speaking of Christ by the Spirit and himself being stoned to death. Friends, this is a moment of singular courage. This is one of the great moments of courage in the entire Bible because of what comes next. But it's not the greatest moment of courage. Now this is personal opinion. Somebody might prove me wrong, but in my mind, the greatest moment of courage is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where our Lord is considering all of the reality of what the Father has called him to do. By the time he's on the the cross, it's already happening. But in that garden, he prays that famous prayer. And what is it that he prays? He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he knew what he was about to face. He knew that God's people had heard again and again this wonderful blessing, this wonderful benediction from numbers. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But he knew what the Father had asked him to do was to experience the opposite of this reality. That his Father so loved his people that he was going to give his Son to experience the reverse of that ironic blessing. The father was going to curse his son, not bless him. The father was going to forsake the son, not keep him. The father was going to turn his face from his loved son, not shine upon him. The father was going to pour out his holy wrath upon the son, not be gracious to him. The father was going to cast him down in agony and give him the greatest soul trouble anyone's ever experienced. Why, Grace Church? So that you never, ever, ever have to experience that one time. The father made him 
who knew no sin to become our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And why did Jesus do what he did in the garden? Why did he sweat those great drops of blood and go to the cross anyway? Well, your pastor, one of his favorite verses, you know it, Hebrews 12.2 says that it was for the joy that was set before him. But I want you to think about this. What, what does that look like? That, that Jesus was looking to the joy set before him? Well, he, he, when he prayed to the Father in, in John 17, he said, Father, I desire that my people, my people at Grace Church will be with me and they'll see my glory, the glory he gave me before the foundation of the world. What is his glory? He, he said, God, I, Father, I want, you, I want all of these folks at Grace Church to see my beauty, my power, my holiness, my perfection, my godness forever. What, what is this like? Well, it's like every Christ-centered wedding you've ever been to. I love the moment in a wedding when the groom looks, sometimes for the first time, and sees the bride. Do you know that moment? Just at a wedding of, of some dear family friends on both sides, and, and, and here's this young man, Caleb, and he saw this, this beautiful bride, Emily, for the first time, and his face was filled with emotion. What, what emotion what do you think was going through his heart? This is the emotion I saw two years ago when my son, Johnny, for the first time saw his bride, Courtney. His face was filled with emotion. It's filled with happiness, filled with joy, filled with anticipation, filled with delight, not filled with regret, not filled with disappointment. What does that have to do with this? Because Christ loved the church and died for the church that he might sanctify the church and cleanse the church so that he might present the church to himself as a spotless bride, washed of all splendor, washed with all splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. That as the end of Jude said, he might present you and all those who are in Christ as his church to himself before his presence, the presence of his glory, with great joy. Believer, Christ is doing everything that he's doing in your life to prepare you for the wedding. He's doing everything that he's doing, all of the suffering, all of the difficulty, all of the hardship, to wash you, to remove the spots and the all of the pain that you're walking through, none of it is wrath. He has borne all of the Father's wrath. All of it is his loving preparation to get you ready for this moment when he will present you and all those who love Christ together here before his presence with great joy and his face when he looks at this bride washed, prepared, is not going to be filled with regret. It's going to be filled with excitement. It's going to be filled with anticipation. It's going to be filled with joy for that moment and forever. That's the story of the Bible. And that, 
Joy is the root that causes this fruit of courage to rise up in our lives. And so the story here ends in Acts 14. Paul, he fled from that town previously, but this time he gets hit with every one of those rocks. Now as we come to the end, see this. Verse 19, they stoned Paul. They drug him out of the city, supposing he was dead. What did he do next? What would you do if you'd just been stoned and thought you were dead? Your, your, your bones are broken, you're beat up, you're all cut up. You'd certainly get on a plane for home. I know I would. I'd be in the emergency room, I'd be in the hospital, and I would be going straight home. Not what this, this brother did. Like his Savior, he had this joy that produced this courage. And it said when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, he entered the city on the next day, and he went on to town four. He went to Derby, and he did the same thing. In, in my mind, there's like Braveheart music happening here. They're, they're checking on this corpse. They think it's a corpse. They think he's dead. Paul, you okay? I feel a heartbeat. We're going home, right? And he gets up. He dusts himself off. And he says, we're going to town four. We're going to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, now what, Paul? Now we're going home, right? No. He goes back to the town that stoned him, back to Lystra to encourage the disciples. And they strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. They said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's all cut up. He's all bruised. He's all scarred. And he said, keep going. It's worth it. Jesus wins. And Jesus is going to be waiting for all of us. Keep going. And when they appointed elders, in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. They preached Christ. They taught those disciples. They formed churches. They appointed leaders. And then they went back and they strengthened them. And then they go back home. And Acts 15, 3 says, as they shared this report, all those in their sending church were filled with joy. Joy just keeps happening. Three brief applications. Grace Church, let me encourage you to parent with the courage that comes from joy because this world wants your kids. Sinclair Ferguson says, since this is the apex of creation that God made man and woman, marriage and family, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that this is where the enemy attacks. Godly parents are needed. Spurgeon said, pray for your children. Wrestle with God for them night and day. You say, but pastor, I'm, I'm single. Paul was single and he had many children. Give yourself to investing in those who are younger. Do you know who one of those was? Timothy. Do you know where Timothy was from? From Lystra and Derby. We read that in Acts 16. The very place Paul 
was left for dead. Is where God gave life to Timothy, who God would use in such a powerful way. Parents and those who don't yet have kids, who God is calling to be spiritual parents, God has given you your particular situation with your particular challenges and your particular difficulties and your particular pain from his loving hand. I can't give you all the whys. Just telling you that that's what's true. Our God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Parent with courage. God is with you. Second application, much shorter. Go on speaking with courage. If you are in Christ, you have the words of life. So do not be daunted by all the opposition that this world offers. We are in a battle. We put on his armor. We go on speaking. And God uses your life in ways you don't know. Even including this next week at youth camp. Just one example of this. I was getting my car fixed a couple of weeks ago. And it was going to take longer than I wanted to sit there for. So I went for a walk in the park. Park I've never been in my life. And I'm walking through this park, and I hear, John, John. I got my headphones in, I take them out, I turn over, and there's a police cruiser. This young man gets out of the police cruiser, and right away I know who it is. It's Arion Austin, one of the young guys that I coached when, when my boys were playing basketball and baseball in our neighborhood. Went up, gave him a big bear hug over his bulletproof vest, and he said, Coach, I just want you to know that I forged my mom's signature on the permission slip because I wanted to play for you so bad. He said, how many kids did you have, Coach? Five? I said, well, we have seven. He said, well, I just want you to know you've got a lot more than that. He said, my, my dad was in jail. And I remember coming to your house and eating your snacks and listening after practice. And he said, things that you said carried me through my hardest days and darkest days. And now here he was, this cop standing before me and we prayed together, encouraged him in the Lord to follow Christ. God uses your speaking and your coaching and your teaching and your parenting and those neighbor kids that are in your house. Go on speaking with courage. Last application, Grace Church, cast your cares on he who cares for you with courage. When your transmission goes out, 
You're not sure how you're going to pay for it. When sickness comes, and you don't even know what it is. When you go, get so sick, you can't even go to work. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Your Father is always writing a better story for you than you could write for yourself. So humble yourself with me before the mighty hand of God and cast all of your cares that are filling up your heart and your mind on him because he cares for you. Looking forward to that great wedding feast when the bridegroom is going to look at everyone who is part of his bride and say, no more sin, no more pride, no more wickedness, no more sickness, no more tears, no more death, no more loneliness, no more hurt, no more blindness to the beauty of Christ. Instead, delight with me forever. Jesus, the great curse conqueror, covers our sin and invites us by saying, take and eat, take and eat. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for Christ and we bless you for this story in your word of remarkable courage that grows out of this root of joy that you have given to us when we realize we know how the story ends. We know who wins and we know what our future is. Even if we die tonight, we know how the story ends. And so we are filled with joy. Father, would you work this joy as a fruit of your Holy Spirit deeper in our hearts that it may grow up, it may fill up our hearts. And from it, Father, would you fill our hearts freshly with courage to face the challenges you have put before us. We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen.